Today on Cross Defense, we turn up the heat a little bit with a conversation with Grammy-nominated and stellar award-winning hip-hop artist Flame, former Reformed Baptist turned confessional Lutheran. We'll also field a lengthy comment from Vicar Lamont, who I think it's fair to say didn't like that I promoted the work and words of abortion abolitionists. At the very end of the show, LCMS President Reverend Matt Harrison has a message about Lutheran schools. You won't want to miss it. Commenting on the January 20th, 2024 episode where I interviewed T. Russell Hunter of Abolitionist Rising, Vicar Jeremy Lamont said, regarding the LCMS, I'd encourage you to look at the kinds of RSOs, partnerships, and synodical programs that we are implementing to see the tenor and the character of the Synod's life ministry program. I think it's clear, he writes, that very little of our collective energy is being put toward quote-unquote abolitionist rhetoric or theology. Stick around to the last segment of the show for Vicar Jeremy Lamont's full comment and my strained reply. Welcome to Cross Defense, friends. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of it with God's word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California, where we are off the beaten path, but we're not completely isolated and in a vacuum. We do understand what the Synod's doing. We're, get this, we actually welcome all our Reformed friends to come and explore confessional Lutheranism, not so that you can learn more about Synod's RSOs, but so that you can truly let God's word be what norms and forms you. It's like Flame did, and we think you should too. So if during the course of the show you want to send in your comments, your questions, or your bits of biblical brilliance, you can do so by going to tyrellbramwell.com slash contact. That's T-Y-R-E-L-B-R-A-M-W-E-L-L dot com slash contact. It's just my name. I'd love to hear from you. You can also find me on YouTube, Instagram, and wait for it, wait for it, on X. Yes, I pulled the trigger, and I will suffer with you all in the land of social media. It's sort of necessary, I think, given the show and all the other methods of online efforts and things that I've been employing to proclaim the truth of Christ. My, new, my username on all those kind of platforms, it'll always just be at Tyrell Bramwell. Okay, yeah, I know. So there I am. So, as I said, uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing none other than Flame. Yes, Flame, who is a Grammy-nominated and stellar award-winning hip-hop artist. He was born and raised in the inner city of St. Louis, Missouri. He has a master's degree from Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. And among all kinds of other biostats, he is the author of Extranos, or Extranos, Discovering Grace Outside Myself. Link is definitely in the show notes. I suggest you give it a read, but maybe you're like, Pastor Bramwell, I'm just not that into rap. That really doesn't sound like a book for me. No, it is, my friends. Don't dismiss this book just because you may not be into that musical genre. This is a book that will teach you and edify you and encourage you in your faith. Definitely don't dismiss it before considering what Dr. Gene Edward Veith, yes, the Dr. Gene Edward Veith Jr. said about the book, and I quote, for evidence that Lutheranism is the kind of Christianity that has the most relevance today, read Flame's Extranos. With a rapper's mastery of language, he offers the best refutation of Reformed theology I have ever come across, not just by argument, but by experience. End quote. 
from Dr. Veith. It's good stuff, my friends. And so let's get right into the interview. All right. Thanks, Flame, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Concordia Publishing House has published your book, Extranos, uh, Discovering Grace Outside Myself. And this is a 2023, so it's a brand new release. We're super excited to have it and, and to have it on my bookshelf. So mm-hmm. anyone who's following you online, which I, I hope everyone is following you online, mm-hmm. they're going to understand this is, this is spot on your brand, right? Um, what are you trying to communicate to, to all your, your hearers by emphasizing this, this extra NOS phrase? Tell us about this and why it means so much to you and what you're trying to communicate to everybody in the world. Yes. Well, firstly, glad to be with you, man. I'm excited. Uh, I'll draw on your wisdom from a distance. So thank you. (laughs) Uh, Everybody's in trouble now. Hold on. (laughs) But I I really appreciate that. That's that means a lot to me. Thank you. Absolutely. But so the term extra nos, so extra nos, it's a Latin phrase, which means outside of us, outside of ourselves. And it was something that captivated me really at a, a low point in my Christian walk where I was doing a lot more of internal gazing, sort of doing these deep dives within myself to see where my sincerity lies. Was my conversion very genuine? So um, that was something that over time proved to be dangerous. And when I heard about this concept of extra notes, what God is doing outside of us in the personal work of his son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit and his word, it just gave me life. And um, I mean, I really felt like I was born again, so to speak. And for that reason, I said, man, I have to expose my audience to this concept, though they probably know it in shadows as it relates to knowing that Jesus died for sinners. But in terms of how that plays out continuously as we live a life of repentance, I think that's the missing piece. So I wanted to unpack that for the people that have been following me for the last 20 years plus. And so I think it's particularly relevant for anyone who's influenced by Protestant thought. So whether that's the more reformed version where you're going to be focused probably more on your affections. If you've been influenced by the Puritans, particularly Jonathan Edwards, and he has religious affections. So the concept is is that you would make sure your motivations and your heart's affections and desires are set accurately on the axle with God's. So you're trying to align your heart with God's mind and your mood with God's mood. And it's just this really internal exercise. So that's one expression. And then you have those who fall on a spectrum of probably uh, charismatic or enthusiasm to give an old reformational word, Um, just sort of that sort of version of Christianity where it's God's blessing you based on your response of praise and worship. So your sincerity and desire to worship him from a pure heart is the, is the thing that you use to get God's blessing. So if you want a new house, a new car, a new job, or you're trying to relocate and figure things out and you want clarity in life, typically you're, you're taught to position your praise in the right way. So whether you're experiencing Christianity on either one of those spectrums, you're looking more at yourself. You're looking more at your own response as opposed to what God has done through Christ outside of us. And I really want to slowly walk through that concept and, and refocus us on Christ. Awesome. Yeah. And you did a great job in this book, um, bring it personally, giving us something to grab onto with a real human being, a, a, you know, a contemporary that we're living with somebody who's yeah. public facing 
um, and then showing us how it is outside of us. And, and the grace of our Lord is, is beyond our, our emotions and beyond what you can find in the depths of your heart that are, that are, will lead you astray. Right. Um, so, okay. So in your book, you recount how the Lord brought you out of Calvinism and into confessional Lutheranism, which I find to be extremely exciting. And for the listeners who haven't read the book yet, which I hope there's not many, would you, and they they may not be fully versed in, in Calvinism actually either. So, um, Mm -hmm. would you, explain which well-known or, or some of the well-known American denominations fall under that umbrella. When we use that term Calvinist, someone might say, well, in my town, I don't really have a church that has a sign that says Calvinist on it. Okay. What, what denominations are we talking about that, or, and especially your, that you came out of, what can be, uh, where, where will people find Calvinists at? Yeah, it's interesting too, because Calvin's influence is nearly inescapable in American Christianity. <laughs> yeah, like all of American evangelicalism has been touched by it, right? Yes, yes, for sure. And um, so it's going to reach all the way down to Black Baptists, all the way up to, you know, American Anglicans. So the, the reach is very broad. But in terms of denominations, like, for example, I came from the Reformed Baptist side of things. So I was, my undergrad work is from um, Boyce College, which is an undergrad program of Southern Theological Seminary. I started my master's work at Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So that, you know, the whole Southern Baptist denomination has reformed leanings, whether that's going to be Arminian and, you know, from the Senate of Dort, or whether it's going to be, um, yeah, your reformed Baptist who are influenced by James Pedigree Boyce. So that's there. Uh, then you have your Presbyterian versions. So you have the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, and the list goes on. So it goes under different names, but the spirit is is there in terms of uh, the influence of John Calvin and and guys that followed after him. So it's, uh, it's layered. Some of it is nuanced. And and I want to give a disclaimer by saying I do believe those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've never sought to demonize them or denounce good things that I've gained there. But I've always wanted to say I think it's a step in the right direction in terms of if you come from a place where the scriptures aren't really prioritized and you may not per se be thinking about what you believe. I think it's a helpful thing in that regard. But I don't think that we should camp out there. I think it should be you know, for those like myself, it should be a, a, a journey that you pass through, getting back to the origins of the Reformation, which again will then take you to further depths of church history where you're going to reach the patristics and then ultimately back to scripture. So that's why I want people to say, man, that's great that you're there, but let's keep talking. Let's keep dialoguing. Yeah. And you do so well with that. And in, in, since you hit the scene, you know, I think in the Lutheran world, we, we have a history of being skeptical of popular teachers uh and you you know you've come into the, into the lutheran world and and you're, you're doing so well at speaking truth from your vocational platform which is great i mean you're public facing you're using your your talents your vocation and to say that is very it's very timely and very appropriate to say hey this isn't to demonize calvinism this is to say hey brother take, take that next step continue to go down that road and where that road is going to lead you is going to be all the way down through church history to scripture, and you're gonna you're gonna come away with it with a clearer understanding of the word, and um, to, that you have documented and journaled you know your experience. Yeah, 
out there for the for the world to see. That's one of the blessings. Now, a lot of people on Cross Defense know that I usually speak pretty ill of social media, and that's probably coming from personal baggage. But yeah. you've used it in a way that is extremely powerful. This is the healthy way to use it and to be willing to share so much of your life in the written word, your your background, your history, and then online still, you know, through all the different platforms. It's, it's such a blessing. So thanks for doing that. Um, Thank you. As we as we talk about that, can you give us just a real quick overview? You don't find too many contemporary artists in you know with with mainstream recognition nominated for major awards in the Lutheran world. <laughs> I don't mean to I don't mean to poke us in the eye. It's just not that common, and I find it fascinating. Um, and you talk about it in the book. You, you know, as you're as you're detailing your your journey and how you you became a rapper and how you, and how you were on you know tour with other um, evangelical rap uh, artists. Yeah. What's the what's the, what gives? Why why is there such a when you think of contemporary praise music, think of contemporary Christian music just in general, not even praise music, just Christian music in in general. You know, I know uh, I'm, I was really into you know punk rock and stuff like that as a kid so like mxpx and reliant k and guys like yeah. that kind of come into my mind from my day um yeah but why don't we find lutheran artists doing this kind of work do you, i mean you have any thoughts on that i do that's a, that's a great uh insight too i think primarily it's because lutherans have such a robust understanding of vocation so this thing that evangelicals have done um which is sort of created a sub subculture within the American culture of a Christian alternative to nearly everything. It's, it's sort of a newer phenomenon that is a part of the theology of just generic American Christian thinking versus in the Lutheran construct, we have a, a healthy understanding that God has us in many different stations. And even in a mundane activity of changing diapers to you know driving down a road is um you know a thing that we can do to serve neighbor a thing that god smiles at and i think most lutherans are probably just busy doing life just being good people and in that way i'm thankful because there isn't as much anxiety as it relates to am i pleasing god am i yeah am my affections right and i really give it my all when i share my faith with the guy you know so there, there that isn't present as much but then I think, as you mentioned, one of the things that can get lost on the other side is what I like to call being Lutheran out loud. So I do think it's helpful to continue to be faithful in all our varying areas of service, while I wish we would add alongside of that cool, creative efforts to let people know that we do think yeah. a bit more about our faith. Here's how we think about those things. Here are categories that we think about Christianity in so that people can compare that with what they're regularly receiving in their diet. And they can say, man, I like that. That seems like a healthy meal over there. And then perhaps we can have a conversation about scripture great, and church history. Great way to put that healthy meal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very sacramental. And that's going to get me to the next <laughs> question for you. Uh, so yes. there's, man, there's tons of great gems in your book. Really appreciated it. Uh, the entire thing in chapter nine, uh, Christ for you, you write, God has graciously provided means for us to endure to the end. It's the Calvinist system that is preoccupied with, am I in or out? As you just mentioned, 
Because of false teachings like double predestination and limited atonement, respectfully, this is still you writing, Lutherans don't live in this headspace, you say. We're not there. We're not caught up in this am I in or out thing, this double predestination thing. And then you say, why? Because we're looking outside of us, externos, right? We're looking to God's promises in the objective work on the cross for all. We're looking to the sacraments, the visible word of God, where God promises to meet us with forgiveness and immortality. We have confession and absolution and election. We have God's promise that he will forgive our sin. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray that way. Dude, I love it. Give us Mm -hmm. this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. He taught us to pray that way, and he will honor our prayers for forgiveness. Again, Lutherans don't have to live in this headspace, and you ask why. Because, and you answer, right? Because we are busy serving our neighbor, as you just said, and not in our heads so much. I so appreciate that, how you express that, and how you correlate that between with the Calvinist's preoccupation with not being sure of one's salvation and this and this system's dismissal of the Lord's sacraments. Well, I don't think they do it intentionally necessarily. I mean, Calvin did, but I don't think all the, the your average lay you know, Calvinist is, yeah. is thinking about things like, I'm throwing out the sacraments, right? But <laughs> the very means that was established so that we would endure to the end is missing when you're in the Calvinist world. And then you go on to offer your assessment of why Calvinists are prone to, to fearing losing their faith. And you say, my assessment is that this is the result of teaching justification by faith alone, detached from the whole counsel of God, to use Paul's words. Justification by faith coupled with double predestination and limited atonement creates an internal conflict, particularly for those who are thinking about their faith. So the person who's taking it seriously is going to be the one yeah. who's who's hit with this conflict, which is the opposite of what's yeah. supposed to be happening, right? Yeah. This is so insightful, Flame, so insight, yeah. insightful because it acknowledges what Calvinists have right, faith alone, yeah? Yeah while observing what they've inadvertently got wrong, Scripture plus, as, as you point out, that their double predestination teaching and, and limited atonement is an addition to what, it's, what you find in Scripture. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, so all of that, me geeking out about how awesome you expressed that. No, Would you man. please, my friend, explain to the saints out there what these two false teachings are and, and how they are they are uh how they can be guarded against. Let's go that way, right? So double predestination, mm-hmm. limited atonement. Let's talk about that. And how do we guard yeah. against this? Ooh, man, it's Sorry. so interesting too because <laughs> Such good I love stuff. the setup. Seriously, I, I I love this setup because it takes me back to my personal experience with those ideas. Okay. Because on the on the face, they sound pretty terrible, especially if you didn't grow up thinking about uh, some type of limitation on the atonement. Uh, basically, 
you most people probably believe that Jesus died for everyone, which is accurate and biblical. So that's a, a normal reflex and, and to, a normal thing to hear. And then this other concept that, in fact, not only did Jesus not die for everyone, the reform would teach, but then they say he created some for judgment. Specifically, that's why they exist, to be judged, to exp- so God can express his wrath. So on the face of it, the ideas sound terrible, and they are. And I remember, it's like, how, well, why would you embrace something like that? And to me, that's where the, the, the work starts to happen, the cunningness. So experientially, it's pitched and couched as a, a unique expression of God's love. So it works its way in your heart by saying, you're so special that you can be one of the elect. You can be one of the ones that God thought particularly about. The day he was on the cross, you could be one of the ones that he had in his mind particularly. So it starts to scratch the itch of the old Adam that wants to be front and center, that wants to be special. So it's doing this work in that in that way. And then the the fear of, well, I don't want to be one of the ones that was created for judgment. So let me respond rightly. So it sort of does this work of pushing you as well. There's this fear factor there. And um, so really the way to guard against it is to not ignore the awkward thing about it. When you is it's hitting your ears and it just sounds awkward. Don't ignore that. Number two, you want to reinforce that that sort of function and feeling with scripture. And when you just go to the Bible and you just get the plain meaning of the words from scripture, um, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4 that Jesus is the savior of all and especially to those who believe. So Paul is very clear that Jesus is the savior of all in some type of way, but uniquely to those who actually lay hold of by faith, what Jesus accomplished for them. They actually benefit from that that saving work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So when you undergird that feeling with scripture, you say, there it is, it's plain, and just go with the plain meaning, you're safe. And then the thing they'll next appeal to is the Romans 9. They'll say, you'll see here, God talks about this, this election, and they'll kind of isolate it from the rest of what's going on in Romans, and they'll make it as if Romans 9 is all about predestination and double predestination, which it is not. And all the verses, the chapters leading up to it, 7, 8, 9, Paul is laying out this beautiful case that we're, we're justified by faith through grace. It's not something that we earn. And Romans 9, he gets into the weeds of proving that even more. And he says, man, look, Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. This isn't talking about their salvation. This is just talking about their dynamic as brothers and eventually nations so it's not talking about salvation and then paul uh paul is very clear to to make sure we know that as it relates to predestining yes god does that beforehand but as it relates to you know condemning someone to eternal punishment god does not do that beforehand in fact the bible says hell was created for the devil and his angels not people in advance yeah. So you undergird those things by scripture, and that's how you guard against that 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 sort of style of teaching that tries to woo you to feel special. You say, I don't want to feel that kind of special. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, I was just hit with this in, in our Bibles. I love how God works. You know, in our Bible study, uh, we're our midweek, we're going through Acts, and we're in Acts 13, and we just got done with it. So we're in we hit verse 46 and verse 48. 
which I never really paused long enough to think about in terms of the uh, the predestination, double predestination debate. And, but this show was coming up, and I was thinking about that question. It was on my mind. And I was like, okay, I want to ask Flame these questions. So um, it really stuck out to me where he, he when Paul is talking to, he's in Iconium, and, he, and he's talking to the, the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, and he says, you judged yourself unworthy. And then in 48, he's talking now how he's going out to, to the you know, gentilic world, and he says, you know, that God has done this for you. So God appointed you. So you get the God appointed language. So he predestines us, but you reject the gift, right? So, so really back to John three sixteen, right? I mean, Jesus died for the whole world. We're all in unless we walk yeah. away, unless we don't want it. Yeah. Um, so how about that with, in this, I'm going to throw yeah. this one to you just kind of off top of my head, yeah. irresistible grace. How does that relate to all of this? Can you speak on that for a minute? Yeah, so irresistible grace is another one of those things that's that's uh, couched in language of love. Yeah. So what what the reform want to do is to say God, He loves you so much, He's not going to allow you to miss a good thing. He's going to make His grace irresistible. And um, so, sort of the way this plays out practically is you realize that because of all these limitations going on in in um, Jesus's work from their teaching there isn't much assurance. So they, they sort of have to couch it in this wooing language to get you to buy into it because if, you know, on the face of it, you will recognize how strange it is. So that's the concept is that God loves you so much that he won't allow you to resist his grace. He's going to forcibly drag you, they'll say. They'll, use, they'll say that's the language of John 6. He's gonna forcibly drag you into the kingdom of God, even if you come fighting or screaming. And uh, while that may have some appeal, it just doesn't square well with scripture. I mean, right. unfortunately, there's there's this uh, old Adam in us that wants to save ourselves. That's part of the curse is that we have the energy, the spiritual energy to think we can actually earn our way into heaven. And that's the thing God has to kill in us. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I don't appeal to that. Don't yeah. appeal to yeah. that. And uh, so because of that energy is in us, um, we can resist. And in fact, I mean, that's what the Bible says happens. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how many times have I come to you? But you you kept resisting me. Yeah. And you see um, it all over. When you stop and think about it, he allows yes. us to resist all the time, all through scripture, yes. right? It's not, it's not, the, I think it's a false um, dichotomy or it's a, it's a false idea that the Holy Spirit is, you know, God is, omnipotent, all-powerful, and who are we, these little ants of men, to be able to resist him? Well, it's, sure, yeah. And I, I was just talking about this with the Bible study class. Like, I'm, I w- am much bigger than my wife. I could do whatever I want to my wife if I wanted to. But yeah. I, I'm her husband. I woo her. I love her, right? Just like we see in, in the Exodus, and we see how the Lord is constantly showing um, that he loves his people. He's taking care of his people. He's, he's not forcing them to do anything. He's, he's guiding them and wooing them. And uh, I mean, I know it's tacky. It's, it's crass to say, but it makes the point. I think that, you know, God's not a rapist. He's a lover. He doesn't force himself. He could, this isn't to say he couldn't, he could, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't. He's shown himself not to be that guy. He's not that guy. He loves us. So yeah. yeah, Hey, well, well said. Thanks flame. I really appreciate that. that. So let's get into another question. More good stuff from the book. So I don't know a Lutheran (laughs) pastor who, mm-hmm. when, when teaching on the gift of baptism, 
hasn't had one of his own Lutheran laymen challenge him, not not meanly, not not you know with any kind of vindictiveness, but challenge with a, but hey, hey, pastor, what about the thief on the cross? There's always that guy, right? And you bring this up in your book. Uh, page yeah. 178, 179, you're talking about this, saying that it's it's a wrong thing to do. Why is it wrong, and, and what's the right thing to do with this? Um, and, and you're, you're talking about pitting things in Scripture against each, it, against itself. So yeah. talk to that. No, it's so interesting, too, because um, and I think the reflex, again, from the person is to, they're trying to defend God's glory. They're trying to defend justification by faith alone. So the initial reaction is, let me protect God. And I you know, I suppose there's something noble about that. And uh, so then they go to the thief on the cross to say, God cannot use water um, in any salvific way. And we would say, of course, it's not plain water only, but it's water tied to the word of God and faith, faith that trusts in the word of God with the water. So we would argue that and they would go back to the thief on the cross. And so the thing that I would like to help people understand is, well, one, the Bible never says that the thief on the cross was not baptized. That's something that you are reading into the story. Number two, uh, Mark chapter one says that it says that everyone in Jerusalem and Judea went out to be baptized um, for forgiveness. So he may have been baptized. <laughs> based on that passage in Mark chapter one. And then number three, the thing that was so helpful for me to hear along the way was that let's just go with your narrative that the thief on the cross was not baptized. What else did the thief on the cross receive but what we receive in baptism, which is a particular word from Jesus that you are my child, that you are safe, you are saved. He, got, he had that word directly from his Lord and, and, and our Christ gives us the same word in our baptism, he marks us as his own with the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He watermarks us, so to speak. And, uh, <laughs> and here we are, we're, we're his, and now we have the joy of constantly living as the baptized. And that's a beautiful reality. So I get it. Again, I get the reflex, yeah. but you can relax that reflex because... Uh, <laughs> For those well, this gets back to the you know, hermeneutical principles, and, and we oftentimes forget this stuff. Not every lay person's going around remembering well, how, what, how are we supposed to read Scripture. But we, yeah. we tend to know, like, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture, you know, read it in context, uh, plain meaning of the text, like we, you talked about already. But another one is that to read Scripture according to the rule of faith, and that, that's why this one gets lost sometimes, and that's because we don't really understand what that means just by the way we say it. But it, it what that is is we're scripture is meant to build us up in our faith, not tear us down. So when you start pitting things against each other like that, all of a sudden you're not reading it according to that principle, that hermeneutical principle. Now you're reading it as a contest. Which one of these texts is right? And as you say in the book, they're both right. Yeah. It's scripture. It's all it's all working together, and it's all for the benefit of that Christian to be encouraged and to have the same certainty actually that Jesus gives the thief on the cross. You will be with me. Don't have to worry about that. I got you. you know, yeah. you're, you're reading the text. Don't let the devil pull you down and destruct you. Be built up. Yeah, so hey, good job. Well Man. said. Thank so you, let me inter interject another question here that wasn't on uh, my my uh, list of questions I had in my, my, my mind to uh, ask you. But for sure. You went through seminary, got your master's degree, yeah. but you're not becoming a pastor. 
<laughs> people might be like, man, this guy is really well-versed in scripture. He's got degrees. So let's talk a little bit about vocation and why you love what you do and kind of build up some of our listeners in their vocations. They're, they're lay people. They're not pastors. You have expressed in the last half hour or so how a Christian man doesn't have to, just because he's interested in scripture and just because he's interested in witnessing the faith to his neighbors, as we all are called to do daily, doesn't mean you go from, well, if this is something I'm interested in, I must be a pastor. No, we need flames <laughs> in, in very many ways of, of that phrase. We need flames in our churches, not always just in our pulpits. So talk to me, why are you not, or maybe you are, I don't know, maybe you were back in mind, you're thinking about being a pastor, but so far, how come you're not a pastor? You're not pursuing that. Yeah. You know, I think um, along the way, there have been pushes to get me to go in that direction. And I think for the reasons you mentioned, because it sort of seems like all roads lead that that direction with this type of interest. But I love, again, that in, in when I came to the Lutheran space, I was it was reinforced in me that what you're doing is permissible and, in fact, a good thing. Because I did come up with a certain style of teaching coming from the reform camp where you're validated by doing the more spiritual thing. Um, so there was this pressure to become a pastor because it seems like if you really want to do the work of God, you'll do the pastorate or you'll become a, a missionary in a foreign country. So that was always a pressure put on me. But then when I moved into, you know, the confessional Lutheran space and they affirmed in me that what you're doing has a place and it's helpful. And like you said, it's great for our lay members to also be in the word and, and, and learning scripture and theology. So that was confidence that was further built up in me. And, I, and I'm thankful for that. So my hope is that, again, um, that this can be a normal thing among friends and and family in the pulpits. I think I will give the reform credit in that way, some type of way they've cultivated a culture where lay people do care a bit about scripture and theology. Yeah. Um, so that's also influence on me as well. There was like this sort of cultural thumbs up given in that direction. Sure. And, uh, but I do see um, now, even being in a confessional Lutheran space, I'm finding that same desire and passion. But yet yeah, to continue to see it would be a great thing. Because it's, I mean, as we deal with regular people on the ground, people may not frame it in theological terms, but they're all thinking about life, the messiness of life. Um, they're all thinking about issues of identity and they're trying to understand, is there a, a God's interaction with what's going on in this crazy place? Yeah. So the, the 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 more we're equipped to not be gurus and have answers for everything, but just sort of point people back to the reality of, of God, his love expressed in his son, Jesus Christ, and um, his care for us in all these practical ways, then we show the relevance of Christianity. Then people see why you should have Christianity around. It's not one of these things you can overthrow and and just think society is going to thrive better without it. As believers, we can show people, man, this is why we should keep God's good news in conversation because it, it pertains to life and uh, all matters of what it means to be a human. Yeah. Amen, brother. Absolutely. So there very well may be some Baptists, Presbyterians, Calvinists of different stripes listening to this show. Uh, you know, I came out of American evangelical 
background myself. So, what would you say to any of our Baptist or Presbyterian type listeners out there? Any yeah. any advice? I mean, you already kind of gave some about continuing down the road, like don't just stop yeah. there. But one more time to kind of reiterate anything you might give them. Yeah, for sure. I think um, one of the most complicated things, you know, when you're even entertaining this conversation is to sort of set aside this principle of scripture alone as the final authority. Um, you, you, and that's a, that's a true and right principle that ultimately uh, God's word is the final authority. But what typically happens is people set that aside. They don't do this consciously, but you sort of set it aside and you end up defending your system. You end up defending these ideas that were handed to you by good people. So you have this sense of loyalty that, that kind of overrides the scripture as the final authority. And you're thinking about loyalty to your pastor who has nurtured your faith and perhaps been there for you when you were going through a difficult time in life. Or, you know, maybe you and your family were pregnant and church members came by and brought food and and just care for you until, you know, you brought the baby into the world. So to even entertain these ideas feels like you're betraying good people and you're betraying a local church community that you love and value. So there's this, it's that element oftentimes that's in a room where we're not even really talking about scripture and theology. There's the, there are these other things at play. So I try to sometimes help people to realize that that's in the room. You have to, you have to see that and acknowledge that's in the room because it will override the plain meaning of the text. And if we can sort of acknowledge that and then get back to whatever this book says is God's word and God wants us to follow it because it's for our good. So if you see a passage and then you see another passage, don't pit them against one another, reconcile them. So if you see a passage that says, baptism which corresponds to this talking about noah and his family being saved through water now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience when you see that don't panic and see god's glory under threat see it as god's good news where he wants to comfort and give you a good conscience and assurance along the way because life is crazy so see god's love in his word and uh, resist the temptation to let other things override it. Ah, oh, great word, great word, man. What are you working on right now? You got you got the bu- the book in the bag. You're gonna be yeah. doing some more writing. I hope so. You uh, you have tons of projects that we see. If anyone's following you on on Instagram and uh, YouTube, are you on YouTube? You're on YouTube. Yes, um, yes. And tell us everywhere you're at, and tell us what you're working on. For sure. So I got my hands in a few things. So I do have a YouTube channel, Extra Notes Academy. So there is, it's like a book club. It's uh, it's a podcast book club. And I'm going through, uh, starting up February, I'll be going through the Book of Concord, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, walking through the article on repentance, Article 12. So join us. And then also there's a second podcast, The Study, which is myself, uh, my friend Lex Lutheran and Reverend Delwin Campbell. So we just talk about scripture, the confessions and culture. Uh, That's going on. And then March 2nd, I'm having... Uh, my first conference, Extra Notes Academy, will be hosting a conference on the two kinds of righteousness, 
So again, that'll be myself, Lex Lutheran, Reverend Delwin Campbell, and then uh, Dr. Leopoldo Sanchez from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis will be lecturing also. Um, and then I am doing more writing too. So I can't say much now, but I have sure, another sure. book in the works and uh, so I'm super excited about that. And yeah, so it's a lot going on. I'm touring in, in, uh, in the month of April. So I'll be all over the place. So my, my goal is to stop at different confessional Lutheran churches every Sunday. So maybe I'll be able to connect with different awesome. pastors there. So may, maybe some of your, your listeners will see me on the road. Awesome. Uh, so yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Any chance you, uh, your tour, we're going to bring you out here to the Lost Coast? Ooh, uh, that's a good question. Are you coming California or, or uh, Southern Oregon at, at all? We might. I'll check the schedule and uh, I'll send you a, a personal email and reach oh, out. That'd be cool. But yes. So that's there. And I'm all over social media. So at Flame314 is where you'll find me. Yep. And what's the 314 about? I didn't catch that. Oh, yeah. It's just my St. Louis area code. <laughs> oh. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Yeah, last week I was uh, on the show. I was talking, uh, talked to Reverend Marcus Williams and his YouTube channel has numbers after his name. And I was also talking about uh, uh, a listener asked to, you know, comment, made a comment. And he had numbers after his name. And I'm like, I got, the, I didn't get the memo. I don't have a number after my name. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And maybe, yeah. anyway. Um, That's funny. <laughs> man, I got to tell you right now at, at St. Mark here in Ferndale, we, we cannot sing or we cannot even talk, say the words about, you know, uh, God's own child. I gladly say it without Ooh. slipping into flames version of the, the wonderful hymn. So on behalf of the entire confessional Lutheran world, more stanzas, brother, more stanzas. We need a I know. song. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that long. I was like, okay, I think I have to pay per x amount of stanzas so i was like okay let me just bite off chunks <laughs> oh, sure 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 um and what's the other i i really i shouldn't even bring it up because i don't have it off the top of my head but um uh-huh. my son and i have been going back and forth with uh the the song you have and it's and you mentioned it in the book too uh yeah Irenaeus said it and, oh yeah uh oh. the patristics the patristics oh, dude good yeah stuff. well done oh my goodness so that's, uh, that's good, one of my favorites. Yeah, it's one of ours too, man. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> any, any, another album coming anytime soon or? Yes. So I have an album that will be releasing the end of February. And okay. so the, the entire project is going to help people how we got the version of Christianity in the Americas that we have today. So I'm walking us from the origin of the Reformation to date as to the transition of Christianity from uh, confessional to, uh, to the pietism. So that's going to be a fun project. And uh, so it's going to be very beefy in, in keeping with the rest of the the short projects. But I think it'll connect a lot of dots for people that are wondering, man, how, well, if these things are true flame, how do we get what we have? So hopefully that project will answer those questions. Well done. Yeah. Good job. All right. Keep Thank up you, the creativity. Man. Thanks for coming on the show, Flame. I really appreciate all your time and, and everything you're doing. You're a busy guy. You got lots of stuff coming out and you made time for cross defense. So super thankful yeah. for that. God's blessings to you and yours, your, your crew there, everybody who's working with you. I know you're not doing it all alone. I know there's other people helping you out and, and, and yeah. surrounding you. So blessings to them as well. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, brother. God's Thanks. peace. Peace to yes. you too. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., Join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. 
Just search for Thy Strong Word only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. It was a joy to have Flame on the show. And uh, well, now for the sake of time, let's get right into our return to the comment that we mentioned at the top of the show. Comment made by Jeremy Lamont, 1855. Again, with the four numbers after the name. I guess Flame only had three, but at least there's numbers. What did I do wrong, guys? So maybe my name, my username on these platforms should be like at Tyrell Bramwell 1517 or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I missed the memo. But I suppose I have three categories of reactions to the statements made by Mr. Hunter. The first is just rhetorical. The idea that a pro-life industrial complex at the highest levels is actually keeping abortion legally alive in the USA. That's a big charge, bordering on conspiracy theory-grade stuff. I think it's important to validate those kind of claims. For example, when he suggests that abolitionist legislation would be successful, but that the pro-life industrial complex moved to shut it down, can we dig into that a bit? Well, Vicar Lamont, please watch the documentary that he mentioned at the end of the video when I asked him for other resources. I did that specifically for guys like yourself. It backs up what he said. So take a look at those other resources. Don't just go off of this one-hour interview. There's so much more to it than just what we had time to get to in the one hour. But Vicar Lamont continues. He indicts some fairly big players who are not legislators, such as Susan B. Anthony List, Students for Life of America, etc. Yes, yes, he did, didn't he? And he rightly classif classified his words as being about the lobbyists who influence the legislators. Did you miss that part? The lobbyists are the ones who are who are flexing their muscle to get the the all conservative Republican legislators of Oklahoma to not abolish abortion, but just to a pro-life abortion, if we're going to use this dichotomy. Okay, so you continue. It may be possible that there are, one, intentional or unintentional misconstruals, and two, actual, actual reasonable rationales for that sort of action if, when, it happens, whether legislative or ideological. And I want to distinguish between those two areas of action. Nobody, all caps, gets exactly what we want in the legislative arena. Compromise is the only constant. Is that, is that true? Is that how we got rid of slavery? You, was there, was there a, a refusal to compromise involved? I think there was. Yeah, there were some who were advocating compromise, saying it had to be done, it had to be compromised, and there was compromise along the way. But there were voices like Wilberforce who were adamantly against compromise the entire time. And I would say it was their motor driving the ship. It was their insistence on pushing for nothing to be left on the table, that we don't compromise, that is actually what drives us forward. It's those who accept compromise as the status quo will always only receive compromise. Now think about what you just said, brother. Your starting premise is actually one of defeat. You are, you are entering into the arena of debate willing to leave things on the table. That shouldn't be where you start at all. And it shouldn't be where we as truth holders expect to end. Think about this, where truth and lie enter a room, where truth is next to lie, if truth tolerates lie, Truth forfeits its truthfulness. 
And yes, we have a two kingdoms theology that helps us understand this rightly, but we can still, as advocates of truth, as holders to truth, as believers in truth incarnate, expect truth and demand truth and then suffer compromise. Not advocate for it, but suffer it. And I would add that your statement just isn't historically accurate. You continue. Victor Lamont continues, as a minor part of this rhetorical category of response, I would probably also point out that his quote-unquote abolitionist versus quote-unquote pro-life perspective is principally targeted at people who fundamentally agree with him on the matter of the sanctity of human life. He may disagree with that, but question mark. I think this is a lot like the attacks, Victor Lamont says, that we see from quote-unquote, friendly fire situations on the other end of the spectrum. The, quote, yes, but your own camp into oblivion. A little confusing there with the text, but I, I understand there were some problems with the way you sent it. So I think it's safe to say that the abolitionist movement does not see the pro-life movement as friendly fire. I think it's safe to say that the latter has intentionally worked against the former at extremely high levels of influence. And so the former, the abolitionist, is now addressing the reality in the room and not the fantasy of the situation. But that aside, how do we make determinations, Victor Lamont? How do we judge things, determine things by externals, right? None of us knows another person's heart. And so we go by what we can see, by what is discernible. And not just words, not just confessions, from one's lips, but also the actions that go along with them. The abolitionist mindset is in keeping with St. John's words in 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. After 50 years of compromise, of fighting with little incremental wins, a behemoth has emerged, an institutional monumentalized thing has emerged that we have to recognize in the pro-life movement. There is a power structure now, and there is power players. There are power players involved. But those of us who are simply here with pure thought, like yourself, I would say like yourself, who really are just in it to save babies, to serve our neighbor according to the fifth commandment, and to serve God, then we're not wanting to compromise. We're not wanting to just go with the flow and, and say something, but not actually see it brought to fruition. And there is, you heard in the interview, and you can see from the other videos, there is a push to remove the gospel, to remove our Christian motivation from this entire fight. And I think with that, we all, all would be better off aligning ourselves with the abolitionists who are Christian, even if of a different camp. You say, I just want to observe that most of his attacks are directed at people who are pretty demonstrably against, all caps, institutionalized abortion. And heck, just to be clear, firmly against privatized abortion too. Yeah, I think you're missing it, Vicar. This is the part about the pro-life movement voices that Mr. Hunter brings up. The, the lobbyists speaking for millions of people. Remember that part of the episode? Are they truly speaking for millions of people? That's, that's where he was getting at. He's trying to say most pro-lifers, like you and me, are actually for the complete and total abolition of abortion. But there are those up high in the lobbyist infrastructure in this movement that are actually keeping it going. And, and that is the thing that we need to recognize. 
Because the regular pro-lifer like us, we actually want abortion abolished. He's not attacking the regular guy like you and I. He's attacking the lobbyist hierarchy that's getting in the way of that. Now, I think it's interesting you say that the abolitionist position is not that here are the variety of ways that pro-life work is being done. Mr. Hunter had oblique criticism for pro-life industrial complex, celebrations of incremental political wins, as if God is happy with them. But rather, it seems to strongly hint that God is displeased with anything other than abolitionism. Yes. Yes, Vicar. When, if you were listening, abolition could have been accomplished, as we saw in Oklahoma, as a case in point, with T. T. Russell Hunter's firsthand knowledge of that situation, when it could have been accomplished that we abolished abortion completely because all the right legislative players were in place, but the pro-life lobbyists interfered. Yes, I would say God is displeased with that. That is wicked. You go on. That is, rhetorically speaking, circular logic, and I, don't, I just don't follow that. I don't understand what you mean by that. I mean, I understand what circular logic is. I just don't understand how you're seeing circular logic in what T. Russell Hunter said. And then you say, there are definitely some theological statements being made there too, which brings me to the second category, which is where I would lead from an opposing viewpoint, theological. Okay, I think I'm, I'm having a hard time following some of what you're getting at here. You're kind of a little bit losing me, but I'll try. But before we get to this next category, brother, let me encourage you to go look into the abolitionist movement. Watch the, de- the debate that Mr. Hunter mentioned between himself and Joel Berry of the Babylon Bee. Because you're not bringing up anything that isn't addressed in that nearly three-hour-long conversation. You may hear his words as, as nearing conspiracy theory-grade level stuff or whatever you said, but I'd suggest that it's, it's, it's not. And that you're thinking it is is because you're, re- you're reacting to the accusations as an outsider, as somebody who's hearing themselves being attacked. And that's not what's happening here. You don't, you don't have all the information. I don't either. But none of the things that he's citing about the blocking of the, the abolitionist bill there in, in Oklahoma or Louisiana or the other examples he gave is secret. It's all in public, in the, in the public record. So take a look at him. I know this is near and dear to your heart, so please take a look at it. You say, if I were beginning the discussion rather than reacting to it is because there is not an actual dichotomy here of limp, pro-life industrial complex, theology versus bold, abolitionist theology. And, and you're making the shift here, Vicar, into the theology camp, I think, if I'm following you right. This is, there is a theology involved, but remember the two kingdoms, and remember we are dealing with, with both of them are intersecting right here, okay? So let's not get too confused. You say, rightly, theology is not subordinate to other considerations. Amen, brother. And that is important to me to be clear about. And pastor, you say, you've already recognized some of the difficulties with Mr. Hunter's theological presumptions. Just to state one, what exactly is the gospel? This is not a quibble, of course, and it also has practical, quote-unquote, practical ramifications in the public square, which I have seen firsthand. And I want to make sure, Vicar, are you keeping close tabs on your two kingdoms theology here as the, uh, sorry, nitpicker guy? Uh, are you also being fair with your positions? Because I don't think you are. I think he, this gets into, you say, a proper distinction of long gospel, of course, and when it's best applied, Sure. We can go out there in a blanket sort of way and apply the law to individuals, 
and institutions and societies, and we should also recognize its limits and its intent. I don't believe that a distinction of law and gospel means abolitionists by default or even necessarily favors it. I think it'd be really good for us to pause the conversation a little bit and talk about keeping in line two kingdoms theology, civil kingdom, church kingdom, ecclesial kingdom, right, left and right, and also vocation, how that works into it, and also law and gospel. Because I think you're hearing a lot of the, the blanket stuff. You know, you, you would pass a law that abortion is murder, and the primary person involved in the homicide, therefore, would be held guilty of that murder, things like this. That is consistent with Lutheran teachings on all those doctrines. If we are to use the language that abortion is murder, then we are, to be consistent, must be holding to, in the civil kingdom, which the church can influence and should influence. So don't think that theology doesn't have a place in influencing the kingdom of the left. If we're going to hold that, then we do need to hold consistently to the fact, the idea, the notion that the mom, if she's the primary mover in the abortion, she is guilty of homicide and should pay the penalty in the civil realm for that murder. Can she be forgiven in the ecclesial realm? Absolutely, 100%. But there is still a guilt happening that is doing a a harm toward another person that should be, according to Romans 13 and other things in Scripture, other places in Scripture, should be held to account, right? And it is, as you say, worth discussing. However, you go on, I want to recognize correct statements where they're made. Oh, so gracious of you. And Mr. Hunter made many correct statements about the way the Word of God is applied. Yes, he did. I'm not trying to suggest that everything he said is just flat wrong, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's not. I think we also have a very strong Lutheran theology of vocation and what that means about how we conduct ourselves in different spheres of influence, recognizing that this is a broken world and not yet a remade and sinless one. Nobody is expendable, and although Mr. Hunter doesn't come out and say it, it's strongly suggested that the pro-life industrial complex is interested in sacrificing people for expediency. That's a tough road to hoe. And I think it goes back to my rhetorical concern above. I'm brought to mind a little bit of the radical reform politics of Theodore Beza et al. during the Radical Reformation and some of their attempts to create godly society and how those things were outgrowths of their theology. As an additional fleeting thought, I suggest that Lutherans also understand that the law convicts sinners and the gospel is what actually changes people. No one's saying otherwise, my friend. I think we can recognize that the law as a legislative reality has been ordained in a very limited set of circumstances in human history. Yeah, I think you have a confusion of the two kingdoms, brother. I I almost have no idea what it is you're trying to say and exactly how to track with you. I'm, I'm sorry. But there is a dichotomy. It is limp versus bold, no matter how you slice that. And I would actually say, how about faithful or unfaithful? I know that's even less palatable and might even uh, poke a little harder. I don't mean it to be. But it's true. If the master of the house returned today, let's ask this question, which is the very premise that every one of us should be operating with. Would the Lord call our compromising presuppositions faithful? You're right. Theology is not subordinate to any other consideration. So why are we making an argument for compromise? Why are you ardently defending compromise and not fidelity to the Lord? That compromising presupposition shades your theology, brother, and allows for the justification of not serving neighbor. 
It allows us to, to break the fifth commandment without remorse and without repentance. It makes a mockery of the doctrine of vocation, actually, and permits us to say that this isn't my concern. I'm a priest. I'm a scribe, so I don't need to, to go over there and tend to the dying man across the street. Let someone else see to it. That's not my vocation. I'm sure a good Samaritan will come along and he'll take care of it. And then you say, like I mentioned at the top of the show, regarding the LCMS, I'd encourage you to look at the kinds of RSOs, partnerships, and synodical programs that we're implementing to see the tenor and character of the Synod's Life Ministry Program. I'm familiar. <laughs> I'm familiar, Vicar. I am familiar. I participated in them. Thanks. Let's leave it right there, because now it's time for a canceled Christian comment. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. That, my friends, was Reverend Matthew Harrison, and this is a canceled Christian comment. Inspired by flame. With thanks to Issues ETC. President of the Church The LCMS operates Issues, etc. You couldn't do better. Not with a letter read not sent to the shredder. Lutheran schools are woke with pools. Filled with God's fools, wetter is better. You don't have to send your kid to the halls of sin. Praying the Lord keeps little Billy from being within. Devoured and soured and spiritually overpowered. Deflowered hour after hour. Indoctrinate. Critical theory. Race, gender, queer. For bimalvanous beer. DEI's dead on arrival, y'all. The school bells chime in Gotham rhymes. But time after time, and line after line, Harrison spoke the truth. What you get under our roof is Christ crucified. The Messiah who died never lied, but cried, was tried, and convicted for you. All life is precious. It's true. My dude, it's time to go to school, y'all. The kids learn what's good and bad, right and wrong, Ten Commands. Promised land, the Son of Man nails in his hands. The gospel, y'all. Actual knowledge. Can you believe it? Our eighth graders, school and students at state sponsored college, it's true. <laughs> if you've never been more thankful that pastors don't rap, well, then I suggest you go follow Flame 314 because that's where it's at. IG, YouTube. I extra knows. Lutherans in the house. <laughs> it's harder than you think, y'all. Nevertheless, this, this has been a canceled Christian comment. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, 
male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. With that, friends, we are done for the day. I look forward to talking with you all again next week. Christ be with you and yours. And please forgive me. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at kfuo.org.